0: And I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, Today we will finish off the book of Colossians. need to open up your Bibles to Colossians 4. We'll start in chapter 7. As I read, and why don't we stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demos. Demas. Father, what a stupendous, amazing, unthinkable blessing to know that you have made us wretches, your treasure. And so we come this morning, Lord, thrilled to be part of your family. Privileged to call you daddy. Aware of the forgiveness of our sins. God desiring to be more like your son Jesus Christ. We want this morning to be more like Jesus and we cannot do that without you and without your Holy Spirit. So Father this morning grant us to hear what you have for us from your word. Keep me from saying anything that would distract from the meaning of the text. Lord may this Your very word be precious to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to fight tiredness, help us to fight um, whatever Satan is, is distracting us with this morning, that we may sit up, that we may hear, that we may have eyes to see what you have for us and what you want us to do. And we thank you that it's possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate the text for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm about to divide the congregation. How many of you hate Westerns? You just cannot stand Westerns. Kathy, you're... you're. Oh, and Joanna. Okay, good. Well, how many of you love Westerns? How many of you don't care? All right. Good. Well, that means I probably have about two-thirds of the congregation's attention for the next few minutes. Um... I like Westerns. I love Westerns. I grew up watching Westerns, uh, mainly John Wayne. I remember me and my cousin sitting in his house with, uh, you know, the the arms of chairs. They have those covers sometimes. My cousin had brown ones, so they looked kind of like cheap imitation coonskin caps. So we would wear those while we watched Westerns (laughs) with our Winchesters under a blanket while we watched movies, and we helped the Duke. Clear out the bad guys from lots and lots of Western towns. We were astonishingly good aim for seven-year-olds. Um, and that's the thing where my love for Westerns began. Uh, but there's a lot more uh, about a Western that we, that we like. Uh, we're Americans, and so we tend to like the, the individual spirit, the fight for freedom, the, um, uh, the, the, basically the fighting back against tyranny and against injustice. Um, we like those kinds of things. And so I just have two examples from Westerns today that I'm hoping will help. I never realized, by the way, how powder blue that suit was that the Lone Ranger wore. But there's the Lone Ranger. And uh, funny thing, he's not alone, but he is the Lone Ranger. And I think that, that this points out one aspect of Westerns that we love, and we love sometimes the loner. Um, the guy that comes in uh, pushes into the saloon in the middle of the night to, to come bring justice to a town he, he's the one who fights injustice all on his own at times and, and we see that in the Lone Ranger he is the Lone Ranger he appears out of nowhere he hi-ho silvers it out of there and he's gone and things are restored for a while until the next episode and that's the Lone Ranger And the next one I want to point out is a movie called The Magnificent Seven. And uh, I love this byline, they fought like 700. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Uh, If you've never seen this movie, the the point is that there's a a Mexican border town that is continually under um, raid from a gang of uh, Mexican cowboys. And they continue to raid the town for what they need. And the town finally reaches out just across the border in an American town. Um, to some gunslingers um, who are of varying shades of good or bad. And yet the Magnificent Seven come together and they decide to help this town, to train this town. And as they do, um, they become attached to the townspeople. Um, One of the cowboys becomes very attached to three little kids um, who by the end of the movie he ends up dying for um, as they defend the town. And the point I want to bring out of all this, like, where is he going? (laughs) Hopefully he knows. In my mind, this worked because we have on one side the Lone Ranger who's going it alone, who is fighting off the bad guys. And on the other side, we have the Magnificent Seven who are banding together as a team to do what they couldn't do on their own but can do together. And that's all I'm trying to say this morning is a simple message of we're all in this together. I know it's super original, I'm not going to sing, but it, it really fits this morning as we look at the end of the letter of Colossians, because here's the deal. We all have the portions of the Bible that we really like. Okay, so some of you are Psalms people, you go, you default to the Psalms. Some of you are the proverb a day keeps the devil away kind of thing. Um, some of you, you won't ever leave the Gospels because you just love reading the Gospels so much. If you're like me, you you like reading the blood and guts of Old Testament history and and the continual movement of God's people away from Him and back to Him and away from Him and back to Him. Um, Most of us don't major on the genealogies. It's usually not like, I love the first eight chapters of 1 Chronicles. It's so fun. And similarly, in the New Testament, a lot of what we try to avoid is the end of the letters where it's like, blah, 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 all these names I can't pronounce. This is not applicable to me. And so what I'm going to try to do today is, is show why the, why the end of the letter is important. And I want to show two things. I just want to look at what Paul said first. But second, I want to look into see what Paul did. See, when we speak, sometimes we're just, some of us especially, are just speaking to hear ourselves speak. There's just words coming out of our mouth. Um, sometimes what we say actually accomplishes something. You get that? So sometimes what we say is just the words coming out of our mouth, and sometimes what we say actually accomplishes something. So when, when a pastor stands in front of um, a couple at the altar, his words mean something. They accomplish something. Um, they accomplish um, on earth bringing two people together in the act of marriage. And so what Paul's saying here is a thing that we should look at, we should inspect, but we should also look at what Paul is doing. What is Paul doing by what he's saying here at the end of Colossians? And what he's saying, I'll give it away, is that we're all in this together. That this is a team. The church is not a bunch of lone rangers. We need to be the somewhat magnificent, however many of us there are, and band together to do this work and and keep your finger in Colossians, but I want to go to Ecclesiastes and show you um, from the wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus um, the effectiveness the the helpfulness the goodness of teamwork. go to Ecclesiastes four turn back in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes four really quick to look at the effectiveness of groups Ecclesiastes chapter four and one of the Higher points of this downer of a book. Start in verse 9. And this is what Solomon says through the Holy Spirit. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And we see the wisdom of groups, the wisdom of teams, the wisdom of partnering together. And I want to apply that to ministry this morning. You heard as I read and as you followed along a bunch of names here at the end of Colossians. Uh, it's been estimated by looking at the letters that Paul wrote and looking at the book of Acts, the history, that there were at least 100 named people involved with the apostle Paul and his ministry. Specifically named in the New Testament. Paul was not alone. Now, oftentimes I think we put Paul up on a pedestal too high and, and look at Paul and say, wow, look at it, I could never do that. And you know what? Paul would say, I never did it by myself. I needed people around me to accomplish what I accomplished, so let 's dive into Colossians four here we 're going to look at what Paul said and in verses seven through nine, we see the first chunk here, and that, that chunk is the introduction of the messengers so paul is is very organized in what he 's doing here he 's ending his letter. This is very typical of uh, Roman letters of the time. And he begins to give the Colossian church, again, who he's never visited, he's never been there, he didn't start this church, he introduces who's actually bringing the letter to them. And so he introduces to us Tychicus. Tychicus, not high on my list of names for a son, but it's actually a pretty good name, it means fortunate, or fortunate one. Um, we see if you look in the book of Acts and then a few other places in the letters that Tychicus um, is a Gentile believer from the, Asia, from the province of Asia. And so that is where um, he came from. Very likely that he became a Christian through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, where Paul was for about three years. Um, he also carries the letter of, uh, of Ephesians to the Ephesian church. And as we'll find out, he's also going to carry a letter um, to the Laodicean church as well. He's considered a replacement possibility for Titus. And he's also considered a replacement possibility for Timothy. So this is um, a very accomplished young man in the uh, ministry of Paul. He is called three very important things here that I think Paul um, really thought about before he wrote these down. Look at Tychicus in verse 7. He is first of all a beloved brother. He's a beloved brother. Um, This is... An indication that Tychicus is a believer. So Paul is commending him to the Colossian church as one of them. He's a believer. He is beloved by Paul. He is uh, one of those men that Paul has brought under his wing, has probably mentored, and he trusts him implicitly. And he calls him a faithful minister. Um, Minister, the word for minister there is where we get the word deacon. He's a servant. And he's faithful in his service. He's also a fellow servant, or the word might be slave, in the Lord. And and that word is usually um, kept for Paul. Paul calls himself a slave in almost all of his letters. And here, he actually gives um, a, a compliment to Tychicus and calls him a fellow slave. Meaning, Paul has submitted himself to a master and Tychicus has submitted himself to that master as well, and so the Colossian church should receive Tychicus. He's going to tell them about all his activities. Verse eight, we see that Paul has sent him for this very purpose: that you, the Colossian church, may know how we are. Paul and his associates in Rome. Paul is in prison. He's in, in telling them this is what's going to happen. They're going to give you updates, and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus is given a very important, um, very important role. In the Greek world, the Roman world at the time, there were lots of roads because the Romans had done so well at that. But the journey from Rome to this section of Asia Minor was quite a haul. Um, this would have been somewhat dangerous. He would have been exposed probably to um, many people. And so in that day and age, possibility of many diseases. Antichicus is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord sent to carry the letter, to tell them updates, and to encourage their hearts. Leaders need to, to be the kind of people like Paul is here where he can trust someone else to do the job. Paul trusts this man. He sends him on a very important mission. He is trust, trustworthy. Uh, often leaders struggle with suspicion. Leaders can struggle with paranoia. Uh, often when the leader sees their leadership position as something that they've earned, they've fought for, and they must keep and hold on to. And just as a as a warning to myself and to us as believers, whatever ministry you're a leader of or have some kind of leadership position, we must be careful to trust people. Find people that we can trust and put our trust in them. Show them that we believe that they can do the things and that we shouldn't have to do all of it ourselves because that points to self-importance that we should not have. Paul trusted Tychicus. He also sends with him, in verse 9, uh, a young man named Onesimus, who we're going to learn a lot more about in the next two weeks as we um, go through the book of Philemon, uh, which is basically sent with the book of Colossians. Um, it's, it's a joint letter, but it goes to um, specifically a man in the church named Philemon. And we'll find out next week that Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And it seems that Onesimus has run away and somehow or other runs into Paul in Rome. No idea how this happened except we believe in a sovereign God who crisscrossed their paths at exactly the right time. And look what he calls Onesimus and bear in mind that he's a runaway slave. With him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Very important what Paul is saying here. chooses his words carefully to communicate to this church that has seen... Anesimus run away, that he's fled, he's broken the law, he's left his master, and yet Paul says he is our faithful and beloved brother, and then adds this Who is one of you? One of you. He's a Colossian, he's a local boy, he is one that they know. He's reminding him him, them of him. And that he ends here with saying they will tell you, meaning Onesimus and Tychicus together sharing the burden here, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Just think of Onesimus when this letter is read in front of the church. Now in that day you have about 80 to 90% illiteracy rate. So when the church shows up, very few could read if they had anything to read. And so the letter is going to be read in front of the congregation for Onesimus, who has come with Tychicus to deliver this letter to the Colossian church. He's got to be on pins and needles, nervous to go back, to face his master, to face these people. And Paul, in the letter, calls this young man faithful and beloved. See, Paul's really intentional again here with how he does this. He is going to encourage Onesimus' heart as he encourages the Colossians. And so those are the two messengers that are bearing the letter from Paul, from Rome, to Colossae. In verses 10 through 14, next, we see greetings from Paul's co-workers. So we see Paul introducing the guys that are carrying the letter, and now we see just some greetings being communicated from the people that are with Paul to this church at Colossae. And the first one he talks about is Aristarchus. And he calls him something interesting here. Take a look at verse 10. He calls him my fellow prisoner. And so there's debate about whether this means he actually was in prison with Paul, shackled to Roman guards. Or does it mean something more metaphorical that he is um, a, a fellow prisoner in the sense that he is a prisoner of the Lord who must do his will. In Philemon we'll see that this is applied to Epaphras, who does not seem to be one who was in prison. So I think the leaning here would be that this is this is uh, using symbolic language to call him the fellow prisoner. However, Aristarchus may have deliberately put himself under some kind of house arrest with Paul in order to serve him. We just don't know. Whatever the case, Aristarchus is with Paul. And we if you go through the book of Acts, you see Aristarchus, a very faithful member of Paul's party. He's mentioned in Acts 20 verse 4 as one who joined Paul in a journey to Jerusalem to deliver money to the j- start struggling Jerusalem church. Um, we find out later that he was a Jewish believer who was converted in Thessalonica under the ministry of Paul. And we also find out at the very end of the book of Acts that he's on the ship with Paul on the way to Rome that wrecks and they're washed up on the shore. And so he is with Paul in many dangerous situations. This is the man Aristarchus, a Jewish believer. Next, we see a man named Mark. And we just taught through the book of Mark in the last two years. And this is the same Mark, the John Mark that we meet in the book of Acts. And we find out here that he's the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's first uh, partner on the first missionary journey that they took. And Barnabas was a very prominent member of the early church. So, Mark is his cousin, and then check out what is in parentheses here. Paul says, concerning whom, Mark, you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, why would he say that? Well, if we go back and we remember John Mark's background, he went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. But when they got to Perga, Mark bailed on them. He took off. We don't know the reasons but he deserted Paul and Barnabas. And once Paul and Barnabas have come back from the first missionary journey, they've reported to their home church. Paul gets that itch to go out again. Paul and Barnabas want to go. Barnabas wants to bring Mark. Paul says, absolutely not. And Paul and Barnabas get into a a disagreement. And in fact, it's such a disagreement that they don't go together on another missionary journey. Paul grabs another guy, Silas, and they go out on a journey and Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus to minister there. So there was some kind of rift between Mark and the Apostle Paul. And here is what we see. They've made amends. Paul has forgiven Mark, and he's even given them instructions at the Church of Colossae to receive and welcome Mark. You see, because if these people who had never met Paul, but kind of consider him their grandfather in the faith, would look at Paul with a sense of loyalty. And if Mark came, it'd be very easy for them to see Mark as a traitor. Mark as someone who was less than faithful. And so to maybe disregard him or to not greet him or welcome him. And yet Paul says, welcome him. And Mark was also um, a Jewish believer. Verse 11, we see um, the last Jewish believer who's mentioned here, his name was Jesus, which was a common name um, of the Israelite people at the time. Um, It is a derivative of Joshua, and so basically Jesus and Joshua are, are the same in name, essentially. Um, and so he was named Jesus. And there's debate about why he's also called Justice. Probably he didn't want to be known as Jesus since there was another Jesus who is God and being worshipped by these new Christians. Um, it also is a Latinized form uh, of a name that means Righteous. And so, whatever the case, he's called Jesus or justice. And what's really interesting here is these first three guys are Jewish that are mentioned, and Paul makes this remark in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And once again, there's debate over what exactly this means. It's it's, it's hard to put together in the Greek, but uh, what this very well could mean is that Paul is saying, Of all the Jewish people that I've reached out to, of all the synagogues that I've preached in, these are the only three Jews who are Christians who are working with me. Maybe said in a little bit of sadness, as we see in in Romans, that, that Paul would rather be accursed of God if it meant that his brothers, the Jewish people, would come into the kingdom. Whatever the case, these three men that are co-workers of Paul's, are with Paul in Rome give their greetings, and they are comfort a comfort to the Apostle Paul. We move on from here then to three more co-workers, and these are Gentile co-workers. These are men who were not raised to know the Torah. They did not know of the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And yet they were introduced through Paul's ministry to this God and through Jesus Christ. And we see mentioned in verse 12 a man named Epaphras who was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7. So we've already talked about him, but just to refresh your memory, Epaphras looks like the one who started the church in Colossae, and very likely the one who started the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so that's a very important thing. Epaphras is, is their pastor or their evangelist to the Colossians. He's one of you. Again, verse 12 says, just like it said of Onesimus, that Epaphras is one of the Colossians. And he spends quite a bit of time here on Epaphras again, and I think it's because he's expanding on what we talked about last week, and that is struggling in prayer, wrestling in prayer. You'll see here what Paul says about Epaphras. He calls him a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, something very, something not mentioned usually of people other than Paul. He says Epaphras is a slave of Jesus Christ, he greets you. And what's he doing? Notice this. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Which reminds us of a few verses before, chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul told the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer. And so Epaphras is one who exemplifies what Paul has commanded them. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. What's he praying for? That you may stand mature or complete and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras loved his people and he prayed that they would be fully mature, that they would, they would grow up, they would stand up as complete. Now, is that ever accomplished? In one sense, it can be. Yes, we, we see mature Christians all around us in this room. Praise the Lord for you believers who have been around, who have matured in Christ. We also know that we'll never fully mature until that day When the Lord Jesus comes back and sin will be no more, we receive our new bodies and we will be able to live sinless and complete. And so this is the prayer of Epaphras for his people. Do you pray this for people? Parents, do you you pray this for your kids or are you more concerned about their comfort and well-being? Surely we should pray for those things, but not at the expense of our children being mature, fully assured, That we would labor before God in that. And not just for our children, for the people in this church. Folks, there are new believers in this church. And and we would love to have more new believers in this church. And the thing that we should pray for them is that they would be mature. That they would grow, that they would become complete. They would make progress towards that goal. And they're not going to do that unless another believer comes alongside and guides them and helps them which takes us to our theme of the year, which is to reproduce. We're called to make disciples. We should pray these prayers. And then Paul says this in verse 13 about Epaphras, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. Now, this is not the normal Greek word for, for work. Um, usually it's ergon, which is related to energy. Um, but but this, word, this word has to do with Pain. It's normally not used of work, but every once in a while it is. And so the, the thought is not that Epaphras is a hard worker, that he's got his hard hat on, that he's going to work for these guys, but that he's actually, there's actually a pain in his prayers for the Colossians. And the same word is used of Jesus in the garden. When Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane, he is, he is said to be praying hard in the sense that there's pain. And that would most likely include anguish of the soul. But we know that anguish of the soul can produce literal physical pain as we struggle on behalf of others. Epaphras is is a a great example to us of a man who, who wrestles, who struggles on their behalf. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Really quickly wanted to, to bring up a map for you, just to, just to help get some context. you got Colossae up here on the Lycus River. And this is uh, in Asia Minor. To the to the west is Ephesus on the coast. And you'll see that Laodicea is about 10 miles up the river from Colos or downriver from Colossae. And Hierapolis is about 5 or 6 miles north. Um, of Laodicea so these are churches close in proximity now clearly it's a little further when you don't have um, trains planes planes trains and automobiles you don't have these things to take you around and yet it's close enough that these churches very well could have um, been partnering together could have been encouraging each other and so um, what begins to happen here is that we see that that not only is Epaphras concerned for the Colossian church but he has concern for the church of Laodicea and Hierapolis and this just reminds me that we ought to be very careful how we speak about other churches. Um, I, I've seen this with, with our, some of our high schoolers where we go to, to Hume Lake and we go to Wildwood, which is the discipleship camp. And there's some other kids that are down in Ponderosa and not, the, not as godly camp. And we begin, to, we begin to, to boost up, not ourselves, right, but the place that we're at. It's not it have nothing to do with us. And we begin to put down these other people. And and we can do that in in our churches as well. Listen, folks, we're not competing against other evangelical churches in Orange County. I hear often us berating megachurches. And I think the big thing that lies behind that is our self-righteousness, that we're a little church, we're a little guy. (laughs) Again, an American thing. And that to get big, they must have compromised somewhere. So they can't be as good a church as us. We got to be very careful, there are some wonderful mega churches in Orange County. There are some lousy mega churches in Orange County. But you know what? There are some lousy small churches in Orange County. And there are some very good small churches in Orange County. We ought not to be competing. We ought to be partnering. We ought to be praying for those other churches uh, that we know of. So many of you um, have churches that you have connections with. Um, here or around the world, around the states, we ought to be praying for those churches. Um, we ought to rejoice when we hear of good news coming from those churches, even when they're having much more good news than we're having. We ought to rejoice in that because this is not a competition in who has uh, the most church members, who has the biggest budgets. This is about partnering. And Epaphras gets it because he's praying for all three of these places. He's working hard. He's struggling on behalf of them in his prayers. And so Epaphras is the first Gentile mentioned. Next we get um, Luke, verse 14. We see the good doctor. Uh, This is the only place in the New Testament, by the way, where we find out he's actually a doctor. Were it not for this, we wouldn't know that that Luke is a physician, is a doctor. But this is where we find that out. Luke is um, a man who actually wrote a quarter of the New Testament. If you take Luke and Acts together. They are one quarter of your New Testament. If you take Luke and Paul together, um, they wrote more than half of the New Testament. And so, uh, this is Luke who's with Paul. There's not many details here. Um, it can conjecture that that he's with Paul to help with Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul seems to have had lots of um, struggles physically. You would too if you were beaten several times and shipwrecked several times and flogged. And, and so, there's there's, I think, wise conjecture that Luke was there to be the physician on these trips. That uh, they were taking him as the medical support on these trips. And so Luke, as we see in the book of Acts, um, is sometimes with Paul, sometimes not with Paul. There's a famous we passages where Luke says, we did this and we did this. And there are times where it says, Paul did this. But here Luke is with the Apostle Paul. He's a Gentile believer. Tradition has it that he's from Antioch, um, the first Gentile church. Uh, whatever the case, um, here is a Gentile who is, greeting the Colossian church as well. And then lastly, we have no mention of anything but a name, and that's Demas or Demos. He's mentioned two other times in the New Testament, and Demos is one of those sad cases. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, this is what Paul says, For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Interestingly, a few verses later, he said, Luke is alone is with me, that Luke is the only one who stayed. Deimos was a, a worker with Paul. He was one of his co-workers. And yet sometime in the future, after this letter is written, Deimos deserts Paul. We don't have the details, but he leaves. And it's clear, I think, from Paul's language that this is not a happy thing. This is not a... He left and he's going and preaching the gospel. This is a desertion. This is painful. And that's going to happen in ministry, Anybody been disappointed? Anybody been let down? Anybody seen people that have been less than faithful? Any of us been less than faithful? Paul works with people who are not perfect, who perhaps might hurt him and might leave, and yet he continues on in his work. So those are the Gentile co-workers, Epaphras, Luke, and, Deimos, and we must move on. Verses 15 through 17 are greetings and instructions about Laodicea. And so Paul, before he ends, is going to give some instructions specifically about the church in Laodicea. And let's look at that real quick. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. Quick note, if you have an ESV, there's a note there on brothers. And I say this just to be clear. Um, this used not to be an issue in our society, but but now it is. Um, that that sometimes when you ladies see brothers, you feel excluded. And I, I my Spanish is incredible. I just ask Eric Reyes. I can hold conversations for about three words. And this is the the example I use. When we go on mission trips and we ask parents at homes if they'll send their kids to our VBS program, we go to their door and those who can speak Spanish are asking if there are any niños at the house. Okay. And now correct me if I'm wrong, Spanish speakers, but we're, we're, technically that could mean boys. However, it can also just mean children, boys and girls. And so the same thing is true in Greek. The, you, the, the word brother is used here, sisters does not appear, but when we say brethren or brothers, it includes men and women. And so he's not just singling out the men, um, he's, he's, he's telling them the, the church, the believers at Laodicea, Okay, so to greet them and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, if you have a new King James, I believe that says Nymphas and the church in his house. So if you have a new King James, you're confused. Um, And you know what? The translators are too because there are different texts that have a a man, a male word used here. There's some texts that have a female word. Um, Basically, it comes down to the majority of the evidence seems to lean to the fact that there's a woman named Nympha. In Laodicea, and the church meets in her house. Because you see, until the 3rd century AD, there's no such thing as a church building. For 200 years or more, the church met in homes. Um, Often in bigger homes. So your more wealthy people in the church would open their larger home for the church to meet. So there's speculation, perhaps. Nympha is one of these. Um, She's mentioned, so it would seem that she's either a widow or a single lady. Um, Perhaps she's like Lydia, who is a businesswoman. And she's opened her home for the church to meet in her house. He greets Nympha. In verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, the Colossian letter, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So either take the letter physically to Laodicea or make a copy and send it there, either way, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And this is where we get into crazy conspiracy theories and stuff, like, well, what would happen if we found the letter to the Laodiceans? And then... Scholars and, and others and less-than-scholars take this and try to make some crazy Da Vinci Code thing or whatever. And, and they say, well, what happened? If we find it, would it be in the Bible? And we have all these questions that are asked. And really, that's not a new issue because Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians and we have how many? We have two. So this is not a new surprise. Um, Paul wrote letters. He was human. God decided which ones we're going to be inspired and included in the bible and so uh, there's no there's no there's no real mystery here i mean could, it might be fun to kind of say well what if we did find it um but the key here is that the, these letters are applicable to the other churches meaning the problems that the colossian church was having were very similar or identical to the problems that the laodicean church was having so that what Paul wrote to the Colossians about this philosophy, about these spirits and about these folk beliefs and this religion that we see back in chapter 1 and 2 uh, were applicable in both places. And so the letters were to be swapped. They were to make sure they were to be read. And then this kind of mysterious phrase in verse 17. And I just have to wonder how this archipus felt. The letters get into an end and all of a sudden his name comes up. And this is what Paul says. And say to Archippus, "See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord." Period. Wow. Uh, not sure what the deal is there, but there's there's thought that that perhaps Archippus was was more of a timid guy, kind of like we find in First in and Second Timothy that Timothy seems to be a little bit more timid and needs to be brought out by the Apostle Paul. Whatever the case, it's either encouragement or perhaps a challenge that Archippus will will stand up, will, will come to the plate. And we'll fulfill his ministry. And folks, we're called to fulfill our ministry too. We're one body. You have been given a ministry. Um, You may say, yeah, but I'm not involved in one. You've been given one. Find it. (laughs) Um, We do that as a body, as a team. Remember, we're all in this together. That's how we find out what our gifts are. That's how we find out what ministries we should be involved with. And those (laughs) ministries we shouldn't be involved with. Right, I hate kids. You shouldn't be in the children's ministry. I can't handle babies. Don't work in the nursery. Guess what? God's gifted you in other places to do other things. We actually don't want you in the the nursery if that's the case. But we do want you where God wants you. And that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be doing like Archippus, fulfilling the ministry. Get this. Who gave him the ministry? The Lord did. God gave him that ministry. And so he is to fulfill it. Lastly, verse 18, as the letter closes, Paul gives a personal greeting and blessing. His personal greeting and blessing. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So it seems that that Paul took the stylus, the little pen, and began to write with his own hand. And he does this in several of his letters. This was not uncommon. Um, Cicero, the famous Roman, did this as well. He would dictate, and at the end of his letter, he would take the pen, and he would sign it. Um, it's, a, it's authenticating the letter and, and Paul is saying, I write this greeting with my own hand. Um, I care for you personally. <laughs> he writes it in his own hand and then he says this, remember my chains. Remember my chains. Quite literally, Paul was in chains. Um, if we read in, uh, the book of Acts, he was under house arrest, but that meant he was able to have a house so it wasn't he wasn't in the in the pit yet he wasn't in the um the toughest prison that would come later but he's still shackled to a roman guard or two in his house um and so he is literally in chains and some have thought that this is a kind of a, a boast um not not a, not a boast with a selfish sort of sense but a boast in that saying this is where i've been brought as a prisoner and and probably not <laughs> i think that This is a stimulus for the Colossians to pray for him. If you read the book of Acts, Paul is not a sit back and kind of wait for God to do stuff kind of guy. Paul's a, I just got beaten up, almost died. Let's go to the next city, guys. That's Paul. And so here I think he's saying, pray for me pray that my ministry would still go forward. I'm chained to these guys. We find out in Philippians that he's chained to these guys and some of these guys are becoming Christians. Um, He he wants prayer. So he says, remember my chains. And then he ends by saying, grace be with you. Which is important because he started the letter in verse 2, grace to you. The whole letter is hemmed in by grace. Which is important to remember because our lives are hemmed in by grace. That breath you just took was grace the ministry you're about to participate in is because of grace what a good thing for us to remember quickly we need to go to what Paul did so we just talked about what Paul said but what was Paul doing and what he was saying I'm just going to breeze through these five these are not exclusive I'm sure you could find a ton more but here are five things that I think Paul did in writing this section of greeting to the church at Colossae he communicated concern for their well-being number one he communicated concern. Sometimes we don't know if people are concerned about it. It's just because they haven't communicated it to us. Some people, it's, it's very clear. Um, it is very clear when Kathleen Nagy cares for you. You don't need her to tell you that. Okay? Others of you, it's not clear whether there's concern or this is out of duty. And that's just because of uh, different personality types and facial expressions and how we bring that about. But Paul communicates with his words that he's concerned about their well-being. Number two, I think he's inspiring love and devotion. Again, this is a church that he's never been to. He didn't plant this church. But in the way that he speaks to these people, that, would, that could not help but inspire love and devotion. This guy cares about us. He's never met us. He took the time to write this letter to us. Number three, he is living proof that Christian ministry is costly. It's costly. And he just assumes it. I'm in prison because I preach the gospel. Duh. That seems to be Paul's approach. He's living proof that Christian ministry is costly. It still is. Maybe not in ways that are as noticeable, but maybe because they're not in his ways that are as noticeable, we don't see it as costly. True Christian ministry is costly. Number four, he communicated with apostolic authority. He's not speaking as just a buddy old pal, he is an apostle, he's been visited by Jesus Christ. He has apostolic authority, and he commands some things to these people. Number five, he displayed examples for them to imitate. You see that? When he's pointing out these guys, he doesn't just say, Tychicus it, is coming, and he's the one holding the letter. And there's Anesimus, poor guy. He, he, he presents imitatable aspects of their character. So he displayed examples for them to imitate folks, this is really, really important and we have to keep coming back to this. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we must be doing the ministry as a team. And and in this church there are teams, but in a sense we're all a team to accomplish what the Lord has for us and that's to make disciples of all nations. We're to teach, we're to baptize, we're to go. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you for enduring 30 years of anonymity as a carpenter, as a fully human baby, then infant, then boy, then man. And Jesus, thank you for the fact that you kept the law that you know, we couldn't keep. You lived the life we couldn't live and then you died the death we should have died and then on Sunday morning you rose victorious triumphing over Satan's sin and death we have no reason to fear anymore you have liberated us and so this morning we want to sing to you Jesus as our glorious Christ let's rise and sing one more song as we go